I'm Kate Daniels. With this being Women's History Month, one thing we do want to discuss is women's equity in the workplace. Yes, we see women in executive positions, but are women represented in the numbers that men are? And it's even more of a challenge for women of color. To discuss some of this, because it is a huge conversation, we have Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield join us. Dr. Harvey Wingfield is a professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, an author of numerous academic papers, and the book Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Dr. Adia Harvey Wingfield, good morning, and thank you for joining us yet again. I appreciate this. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Well, we have so much going on and so many important things to address, and of course, uh, Right now, with Women's History Month, March is Women's History Month, uh, looking at women in positions of leaderships, uh, women being able to really accomplish that. And with you as a black woman in a really strong role, I think, as professor of sociology at Washington University and, you know, having written this book that we've talked about in the past, Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in in the New Economy, I feel that you will bring this important lens to this conversation. So, first of all, thank you for being with us once again. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Here's the thing. I looked at the numbers. I'm sure I've heard them in the past, but I thought, okay, when we look at lead uh, population and those uh, persons in leadership capacity, so we see it in a 2019 census that or uh, look at the population. 60% are white. Blacks are just 12.2% of the population, which I thought it was larger than that, but that's what we see. However, then we look at leadership positions, and we see that 70% are white and only 3% are black. And then when women have so much less, I I forgot what the percentage was of women, but it's a lot smaller. So as a, a black woman looking at leadership, it's... It's just very, very minuscule, isn't it? Yes, that's true. There, the underrepresentation is really stark, uh, and that extends to a lot of different industries. I think regardless of the field that you look at, whether we're talking about government, politics, academia, corporate settings, tech, the representation of women of color at large and black women in particular in leadership roles is really strikingly absent. So here we have a chance to, to discuss what can we do about it besides repeating that this is an issue? But you um, actually have a role um, as professor of sociology, but in leadership with uh, sociologists. Uh, um, I'm trying to now find in my notes that you are president of, oh, Sociologists for Women in Society to advance gender, gender equity in sociology. So in this field overall, which is an important one, uh, again, women have are obviously having a challenge. Right. And actually, uh, it's funny that you bring that up. My term as president of Sociologists for Women in Society actually ended. I'm actually president of a different organization, which is the Southern Sociological Society. Now, both of these are professional associations for sociology. 
Uh, but they both are focused uh, in various ways on promoting sociological research and contributions and being a professional home for working sociologists. The history behind Sociologists for Women in Society, however, stemmed from the fact that up through about the late 1970s in sociology, women were often explicitly and openly excluded from active work and participation and involvement in our main professional association, association which, the, which is the American Sociological Association. And Sociologists for Women in Society, or SWS, actually was formed after several women were extremely frustrated that they were denied seats at the hotel bar where the American Sociological Association meeting was being held. So they left the premises and started talking about the need to form their own organization that would represent and advance women's interests in the profession. And how long ago was that, in the 70s? That was about 50 years ago, yeah, yeah. so not really that long ago in the, in the grand scheme of things. So one thing that stands out to me as you say that is, you know, when there's this seeing the that inequity, sometimes it's then the impetus, let's make things change. And so change did occur. But was there still, is there better representation for women just taking in this category? Right. So that's a complicated question. And let's say we take academics at large. If we take academia then the numbers of women who are enrolling in colleges and universities for degrees actually is growing. And I believe women actually outnumber men as college and university students. The numbers of women that are in faculty positions has also uh, moved significantly over the last uh, 50 or so years. But when you start to take a closer look at where women are represented, that's when you start to see some problems. I believe that the last set of data indicated that women were actually overrepresented in non-tenure track faculty positions. And you might think to yourself, well, what's the big deal? At least they're on faculty, at least they're in academic positions. But the challenge with many non-tenure track faculty positions is that they provide a lot less stability, a lot less security. People work on a shorter contract term. The pay, the job security is often far less than people who are in tenure track positions. And even when we look at tenure track positions, where we still see an increase of women in those jobs relative to where they were decades prior, Women are still overrepresented in certain fields, particularly in the humanities and in some of the social sciences, that tend to offer less pay, less prestige, and less status in the academic community than, say, business or law, which are the segments of academia that unquestionably offer a lot more, uh, a lot more money and a lot more financial security. Engineering is another example. And when we take a look even further up at the hierarchy within university settings and academic contexts, we also see that women still remain underrepresented in leadership roles. I was just looking at some research uh, a couple of days ago that indicated if we look at the data, uh, demographic data that make up the people who constitute college and university presidents today, this is still an area that is disproportionately constituted by white men who tend to be older. Women, I think, are about 20% of today, maybe 20, 25% of today's college and university presidents. Uh, but I, And I'm not totally sure I have that number right, but I know that they are not at the 51% mark where they would be if they represented parity to their presence in the population. So like many fields, we see that there are some areas for success and some areas to be proud of. The fact that there are more women in academia is certainly a good thing. The fact that there are more women enrolling in colleges and universities to earn degrees, also a good thing. But we want to make sure that that advancement represents parity and that that parity takes place at all levels of the academic structure from leadership on down. And I think in other industries, we want to try to push to make sure that we're seeing that equal representation across the board 
not just in entry-level positions, not just in positions that might get someone in the door but don't really offer the opportunity to fully be part of the organization, but again, from the top all the way through the organizational structure. So with your view on this, have you seen or do you think that there is um, a path or maybe a few paths that make sense as to how to ensure that women do get more of that equity, and certainly black women. Right, right. Yes. So I think that there are some steps that organizations can take. I think one involves um, looking at, especially if we're talking about advancement, I think it's important to look at the routes by which people advance in organizations. And that's more challenging than it sounds, because a lot of the times, a lot of the time organization, excuse me, a lot of the time advancement is opaque and murky and not necessarily as straightforward and clear as we might think. It's often not clear to people what they need to do to get ahead. The specifics for advancement aren't always laid out clearly and precisely in many organizations. And often it is based on or driven largely by uh, relationships and connections to who people know and who has a position where they're getting mentorship. And more importantly, the mentorship where they're getting sponsorship from someone highly placed in the organization who can offer the feedback and support and the opportunities for that person to be in leadership role. And we know that in many cases, women don't necessarily have that sponsorship. That means that they have someone inside the organization who's highly placed, who's willing to go to bat for them, recommend them for opportunities, and put them in key positions. The other challenge that I think organizations have to tackle, especially when it comes to gender parity in the workplace, is really figuring out how to bridge the challenge between the old model that many organizations had of what a worker looked like, with that being the idea that a worker was someone who could just come to work and be there at all times and who was unencumbered by family pressures, and the reality of today, which is that we know that many women do a disproportionate amount of care work in the homes. That should not mean that women face institutional structures that make it impossible for them to advance. But all too often, that's the reality for many working women, that the expectations in a workplace are simply incompatible with the realities of their lives as caregivers, as parents, and as people who try to work. I think this is a real opportunity for many organizations to rethink and restructure what their expectations are and what their implicit norms are about who they see as a solid worker and who they see as someone with leadership skills and leadership potential so that we don't continue to have this environment where so many women fall by the wayside, not because they lack the skill or the talent or the drive or the ambition, but just because our existing workplace workplace structures make it impossible for them to advance to their fullest potential. Oh, that is so much what dense information that is so <laughs> critical. And I couldn't help but think that it's been more so much more complicated now with COVID, where mm-hmm. we've seen that so many women have essentially been forced to leave the workplace, too, mm-hmm. because of, of what's gone on. Right, right. And I was thinking of that, too, as I was talking. It just gives us such a stark example of how the way that our current workplaces and our current work practices are set up really simply do not reflect the realities of America in 2021. Most families are families where there are multiple people, multiple adults working. Most families are two-earner households, but we don't have workplaces that are set up to reflect that. And it's really presenting a problem and a challenge for the opportunities that people have to thrive and succeed at work because women just simply cannot do everything. And something is going to have to 
be restructured. And I think it just makes more sense for organizations and workplaces to restructure in a way that allows women to meet their full potential rather than creating the situation that we see now where, like you noted, many women are dropping out of the workforce and they are leaving work or they're being pushed out of work uh, because of inflexible norms that make it difficult or impossible for them to meet their needs of being caregivers and working people. But it doesn't have to be that way. Exactly. And so this is showing up that kind of disparity and maybe thinking back to 50 years ago and when the women sociologists found they didn't have a seat there at the bar creating their own organization, that maybe this is that kind of drive to create what we need to have happen. I'm not sure exactly how that happens, but uh, perhaps collectively we imagine what it will be. We'll create it. Right. I mean, I think that really has to be the next step. And I think that it has to be something that occurs not just from, certainly not the level of individuals pushing to change a workplace, because it's much easier to do so collectively than it is individually. But I also think this is a real area where public policy can speak to the challenges that are present. I think that we are in a moment where uh, at least there are some people at the political level who have at least had conversations or spoken about uh, the ways in which these organizations and companies need to change. I think that public policy changes, like simply establishing things like paid leave <laughs> or sick leave so that families don't have to rely on their own savings to take the Family and Medical Leave Act, which only applies to workers who are at companies where there are 50 or more employees and requires workers to take unpaid leave. This isn't something that has to be the case in 2021 America, particularly when you look at the rest of the Western developed world and see that paid leave is a fact of life in many places. And those societies haven't collapsed. We can, we could do that here as well. And it would be a huge difference for many working families. I think it's a matter of uh, will and a matter of um, basically being willing to take these steps and being committed to making these changes. But it's not something that's impossible to do. These are things that can't happen. Exactly. So, and we have examples, as you said, I know we, I, I just look north to Canada where I have family and my niece is able to take a year of paid parental leave um, and her husband can also take that kind of leave that is paid. And how incredible is that for the family, but also, of course, you know, individually for that child to have their mother there for that first year. Right, exactly. I mean, if if you look at other countries and what many of them are able to provide in terms of paid leave, it will make your stomach churn (laughs) when you compare it to the, the U.S. And I think often people who are opposed to this take this approach that, well, you know, you've made the decision to have children and I shouldn't have to be responsible for your decisions and don't have kids if you're not going to be willing to to do this. But I think that's a view that really misses how collectively as a society, we all benefit when there is an infrastructure in place that allows everyone to thrive, right? And the contrast to that is what we see today. There, I read a story in The Atlantic about five or six years ago about a woman who I believe was a food service worker who had a baby and had to be back at work two weeks after giving birth because she had no leave policy. The organization provided no infrastructure for her. And she simply, for financial reasons, could not afford to not work. So two weeks after giving birth, uh, anyone who has given birth can tell you (laughs) 
that's so far from optimal. That's not the time when you need to be back in a workplace standing on your feet and trying to focus on work and not on bonding with your baby. But again, we all lose as a society when that is the structure. That parent loses, that worker loses, that organization loses, that child loses. And as a society, I believe that we really thrive better when all of us are in a better position to benefit from better public health, from better mental health, from healthier, more functional workplace experiences. So we really are not doing ourselves any favors, in my view, by sticking to these policies that, again, reflect a previous era of work when we were more likely to see single-income households uh, than we are today. That's just simply not the reality, and our policies haven't caught up. And the other thing is, it's not as though the monies, those dollars were not there. It's just how we choose to share them because the wealth is so, uh, what, limited or it's off to that wealthiest area that keeps growing. Whereas <laughs> if it were shared more equitably, and I'm not saying that it has to be even across the board, but if there was more sharing of it, more proportions of it put in these places that really benefit the greater whole, that would make sense, wouldn't it? It would. I mean, data show that income inequality is at record levels at, in this country at this point in time. There is a huge, huge gap between uh, income levels in the United States and an enormous and growing gap between the most well-off and the least well-off in this country. And that's not, again, a reality that we have to accept. That's not something that occurred by accident. That's the result of years of public policy and decisions that were made that created and widened this gap. One of the things that we can think about doing as a society is thinking about establishing policies that would serve to narrow that gap. And many researchers will tell you that policies that restructure our workplaces and that establish things like paid leave, paid parental leave, uh, paid sick leave, a uh, higher minimum wage, there's research that documents that those things could serve to really benefit uh, closing this this income gap and closing this economic gap, which, as I mentioned, really does not benefit us as a society to have. No one at, at, at large as a society, we aren't really served well by having this enormous income gap. And closing it really works to the betterment of all of us for the, some of the reasons that I mentioned. And so one of the things is certainly we have to keep talking about this, but there are action steps, obviously, that we need to take. And I, I would think that um, as far as policy goes, we need to talk with our legislators and public officials, right? Yes. I mean, absolutely. I think that they are the people who are elected to represent us and to establish and draft policy. This, they're, that is their responsibility. And I think it's important to make sure that uh, people contact their representatives to let them know the types of things that they'd like to see. There are some studies that suggest that even that the, in our current political system presents some problems, uh, given the extent to which uh, politicians sometimes are or are not responsive to um, <laughs> their constituents. So I don't pose that as if that's a complete uh, solution to all of these issues. But again, I do think that in as much as we have elected representatives who are supposed to represent their constituents, it certainly doesn't hurt to make sure that there's pressure on them to try to make these broader changes. So that is one area. Um, on a 
on the uh, larger scale, I guess, looking at the national scale and and looking at the current administration and and seeing how what the approach is, uh, both in terms of the the members of the cabinet that the president is appointing and seeing more of um, seeing more what equity maybe would you call it that what is your feeling about what's been happening well i it's early and i think it still remains to be seen what direction this administration is is going to to go in um but like i said i think that research does document that there are concrete steps that can happen at a policy level and i know that there are people who are connected and affiliated with this administration that know about, I mean, I, I know some of these people personally, and some of them have done this research, so I know that they know firsthand that uh, there are data that indicate how political structure, excuse me, how policies can change uh, in ways that support reducing this equity or this inequality, as you put it. So I think we're going to have to wait and see um, what's actually going to happen. But I think it's not for lack of knowing. It's not for lack of having access to this information. Um, but I just don't know at this point what's going, whether, what's going to come out of this and whether having that information is going to be able to yield and translate into uh, real policy gains on this administration's part. I think it's early. Um, obviously, I, I hope so. <laughs> yes. But I just I just don't know what's going to end up happening. Yes, of course. It, yes, very, very early in its infancy, right. basically. So I'm going to shift back to women moving into positions of leadership. And you were saying uh, that uh, there just isn't that path upward is not necessarily very clear and and defined. So mentorship came into it. You were men- mentioning how that's important. And that's something that's just become that much more established in my mind just more recently, even though, you know, for years I'm aware of mentorships, I've been involved with mentorship programs. But now i um, I just feel strongly that you can look outside your organization, that it is really important, particularly as you want to advance, to just key in with someone or maybe several different people to kind of be your guides along the way. Is that what you've um, found or what you feel could be beneficial? Right. So, yes, I think Having multiple mentors in the way that you've described is really critical and useful. I think that there's research that's starting to emerge to suggest that that actually is a more advantageous path that people can and should take, right? So if we take, uh, let's say we take a hypothetical woman in a corporate setting, she might have a mentor in her division, perhaps her boss or someone else who can give her advice and feedback on navigating office politics or how to handle a thorny situation with a coworker. But she might also have a mentor outside of her organization who gives her advice on her career at large, right? When it's time to think about perhaps leaving that company or when it's time to think about pursuing other opportunities uh, in the field uh, or outside of the field. Uh, she might even have a third mentor who gives her advice on work-life balance and how to navigate uh, family demands and how those might compete with our professional demands. But I think it's also really critical to distinguish between mentorship and sponsorship. And this is something that I was bringing up earlier as well, because the research indicates that 
organizations are a lot more likely to now put uh, mentoring programs in so, of some kind in place, right? It's become a lot more buzzy, and it's a thing that people are more attuned to as it presents a, a potential uh, thing that organizations can do differently for workers. But a mentor is the person that you can go to who can give you advice and feedback and offer suggestions about what you're doing. A sponsor is different. A sponsor is the person who, again, is more highly placed than you in an organization. But the sponsor is going to be in rooms and in conversations and in meetings that you're not going to be a part of. And the sponsor is the person who actively advocates for you in those spaces. So if we take in my own career, my mentors have been people that I could go to about questions I had about research or ideas I had for a project or things that concerns I had about submitting maybe a paper to one journal as opposed to another, or reading something before I wanted to send it out for publication or for peer review. Those would be people who serve in mentorship roles. And I've had, been fortunate to have a lot of mentors in my career who served in that, in that position. But the sponsor is someone who might be more highly placed than me in my organization, who when it comes time to lead an important campus committee, or when it comes time to appoint somebody to an important role, the sponsor is the person who says, you know, we should really get a DIA for that. She would be great in this particular position. She's interested. Let's think about asking her to do that with the eye that the sponsor puts you in a position to do work that allows you to shine and succeed and do well and gets you noticed by people even higher in the organization in a way that can chart your professional career. And I've been very fortunate to have people who have been sponsors of my career in that way also. But I think it's critical to note that sponsorship is really what paves the way in a lot of forms and a lot of organizations for advancement, in some ways perhaps more so than mentorship does, because the sponsors, again, are the people who are advocating for you to really try to get you opportunities that otherwise you might not even know about, but certainly could not get on your own. So both are really important, I would say. Yes, right? yes, definitely. And and maybe this is, like for me, it was like this this light going light bulb going off that seek out a mentor. Don't feel that you have to really just muscle through this on your own because that could feel like banging your head against a wall. But <laughs> but um, mentors might find you, but really do not be shy at all about seeking out a mentor. Right. I mean, I think that you have to. I don't think, one, I don't think anyone advances in a career or an organization completely on their own. I just don't think that 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 happens. I mean, even down to the basic level of having to ha having to have uh, references and someone to write you letters of recommendation. No one gets to a leadership point completely by themselves without any assistance or help from anybody. But also, I don't think it's necessarily true that mentors fall in your lap. People rarely, particularly busy people, which many people who are more senior tend to be, and certainly for underrepresented uh, workers who are in leadership positions have so many things to do that they're not, in most cases, going to seek you out and say, you know, I just, I see a spark. I'd really like to, to be your mentor, and I'd really like to, to do these things and, and work with you. In many cases, that's not what happens. I think it's useful for people uh, to think about ways that they can connect with someone uh, in an organic fashion who might be willing to offer some, some mentoring. And this is also where I think it's useful to think about what kind of mentoring you want from that person, right? Because one person may not necessarily be best suited to be your mentor in all things. And this is why, like I mentioned before, you might have a mentor in your organization who gives you specific advice about your current job. You might have a mentor outside of your organization who gives you broad advice about your career path and your career direction at large. 
you might have a completely different mentor who's maybe outside of your field, but someone who has navigated the work-life balance in a way that you admire and respect and who can give you feedback and advice on when to cut back, when to say no, how to balance whatever challenges you might be having on a personal level with your professional aspirations. But either way, these are probably not going to be people who are going to come find you. I think those relationships can develop organically, but they also can uh, benefit from some proactivity on the individual's part. And you could have the dual role. You could be being mentored, and then you're also mentoring someone or someones. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, these are such critically important issues uh, that face us today, you know, even more so. But uh, do you feel that this is a time that really is prime? It's always the right time. But it, right now, there's just that much more focus and energy. And the time is really right for this kind of change, uh, both professionally and, and in terms of our society. I think so. I mean, we are really seeing now a reconsideration of a lot of assumptions that we've had about work and organizations and how they are and have been structured. I think now is such a right time for us to have these conversations and to think more, uh, hopefully when we are past this COVID nightmare, which I hope is as soon as possible, (laughs) I think it's really critical to be prepared to rethink a lot of our assumptions about work and to do so in a way that meets the needs of a post-COVID world, but that also meets the needs of the workers who inhabit it. Yes. Well, you are so terrific to speak with about all of this, Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield. I just so respect the work that you do and really greatly appreciate your taking time to you know, bring forward some enlightening ideas for us and uh, kind of help us to push forward. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so greatly.